0: How rough will the financial waters be for Canada as we head into winter in the second wave of the pandemic? The federal government outlined its economic priorities in the fall economic update. And for those who get seasick from waves of red ink, the numbers could be nauseous. On the other side of the coin, we and the rest of the world are in uncharted territory when it comes to navigating an economy in a pandemic. Now we asked you on our unpublished.vo question of the announcements in the fall economic update, which do you feel will help Canadians the most? A tax on digital services, national childcare program, overhaul the tax system, $1 billion for long-term care, other, none of the above, and undecided. I found surprisingly none of the above. Was it uh, two-thirds? Now, however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us this evening to discuss this issue is Ian Lee, professor with the Sprout School of Business at Carleton University. Jim Stanford is an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work. Brenda Slater is with the Association of Canadian Independent Travel Advisors. And Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And I thank you all for joining us. And, And we'll start off with you, Ian. We talked on the podcast, $400 billion. And as a deficit, it didn't worry you. But it's the addition to the debt that could bring reaction to the markets, right?
1: That's my view. Um, yeah. The I, I'm not suggesting Canada on the edge of insolvency. Of course not. We do have a printing press called the Bank of Canada. But I'm also not of that school that says you can just add on uh, um, gargantuan amounts indefinitely into the future. Mm-hmm. I'm very much in the David Dodge school that says you know short run we can afford it, but we've got to bring it back very very quickly. And I I don't I know you we've talked about and other people have talked about various tax measures. I, I, the, the ghost in the room that no one's talking about is that I think we're going to be looking at very serious austerity, very similar to 1995, because there aren't enough taxes that can be passed to pull back the, that enormous amount of money to bring it into
2: sustainable territory.
0: Jim, how concerned are you that interest rates could rise and, and well, throw the federal plan right out of whack?
2: Well, Ed, the higher interest rates would make a terrible difference to it, no doubt about it. In fact, the the great irony is the government's actually saving this money on interest payments uh, this year. About $4 billion is what interest costs are going down, even though the amount of debt is going up by that large deficit. And that is because interest rates have fallen so close to zero. Now, everybody says, what happens if they go back up? Well, interest rates are not something that's set on Mars. Interest rates are determined by our Bank of Canada uh, on the basis of economic conditions, including how different borrowers would be able to react to higher interest rates. Uh, That includes the government, obviously, but it more importantly includes Canadian households who have huge debts of their own. Canadian household debt is much, much bigger than government debt. So those factors, the reality that so much of the economy couldn't handle very high interest rates is going to restrain any effort by the Bank of Canada uh, or even by financial markets to drive interest rates up. So I, I'm confident that interest rates are going to be very low for some years to come.
0: Brenda, the tour, the tourism industry was hit very hard, and you're with the Association of Canadian Independent Travel Advisors. Was there anything in this update for your industry and members?
3: Uh, well, I have two answers. The short answer is for independent advisors no, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, for if you owned a brick and mortar travel agency, there were some additions in there for wage subsidy and uh, rent subsidy and the change of the rent sub- subsidy program. But other than that, unfortunately, no. And you know,
0: in, in, you know, you're part of the not the airline industry. Obviously, you're off independent to the side. The airline industry didn't really get a lot of play in the uh, in the economic update. Are you expecting perhaps you could be included in something a little later when that sort of become clear to the federal government?
3: Uh, Well, the hope is that uh, with any airline bailouts, that they will protect commissions for travel advisors and travel agencies. But right now, uh, if the bailout goes through as planned, uh, we are looking at having to repay, I think the number Actus tells us is $200 million dollars in wow. commissions that have to go back to the airline in order to have passengers refunded, which is massive yeah. when we don't have any revenue. So and, it's,
0: it's- and, and you're an independent business as well. Exactly. I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to get that point out. Now, a $100 billion in stimulus over three years. You've called for a tax cut stimulus to put more money in people's pockets. How is that approach better than spending?
4: Well, I would say from the uh, from the fiscal update, uh, it was eyebrow raising to see a pledge of stimulus without even specifying what it was going to be on. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, the government wants to achieve X and spend on this program, that program, but to throw a number out there and say, we've decided how much we want to spend and we'll figure out something to spend it on later. I thought that was a little bit odd in terms of the uh, tax cut proposal. You know, I made that proposal uh, early on in the Mm -hmm. summer. I would walk some of that back now because a lot of the money that has gone out the door has actually been accumulating in the bank accounts of Canadians. We've seen a lot of the statistics that show household savings are up. And you've even heard the finance minister, Christopher Reland, talk about how that could become a stimulus if that money is unlocked. And I'm very interested to see how the government will act moving forward, um, knowing that that money is sitting in people's bank accounts. Is that going to have an impact on their argument that the government itself needs to borrow more uh, to spend rather than trying to get those people to spend what they're sitting on?
0: Ian, revenue is the other side of the equation. And one angle that isn't being discussed that we did point out in the podcast was societal aging. What challenge is that presenting for Canada today?
1: I've um, been probably by myself on this issue um, during the la- the COVID crisis, uh, because people are saying, you know, the world's come to an end almost. We've gone over the cliff. I think this is a temporary crisis. COVID is going to go away. It's the moment we roll out that vaccine, and I'm not going to get into a debate when, whether it's three months six months, nine months, COVID is going to come to an end relatively quickly. But the way I like to put it is, not one of us have stopped aging. Society is continuing to age. COVID, no COVID, COVID disappears. We are going to continue to uh, age very rapidly. The dependency ratio is crashing down from seven or eight in the late 60s, down to two, two and a half people for every retiree. We know older people. The chi data is crystal clear that older people like me above 65 consume a lot more healthcare. And when you get into your 70s and 80s, it's just gargantuan. And, and so these problems, and of course the economy is slowing down. All of the studies from including finance show that as we age, the, the GDP is going to slow down. And that means in plain English, that revenues flowing into the federal and provincial and municipal governments are going to slow down because they're so sensitive to GDP growth. And so we're looking at expenses going through the roof while well, revenues are going to be going down. At the same time, we've rolled up this enormous indebtedness and we're not going to get the growth uh, that we saw in the late 90s that we used to uh, deal with the downsizing at that time. That's not going to happen uh, this time around. So we're going to get uh, pinc- uh, you know, pincers, uh, on both sides on this, and it's going to create enormous problems going forward.
0: Now, uh, Jim, a national child care program, uh, you feel it would create 300,000 jobs in between 19 to $27 billion annually. And uh, I guess the first thing I'd, I'd want to know is how would you get to that point?
2: Well, uh, our research on that subject, uh, Ed, looked at three different categories of benefits that are created. Uh, by a, a rollout of a national child care program, and it wouldn't happen overnight. It would probably take 10 years to get fully rolled out. The first is the jobs and work associated with actually running those child care centers and delivering those services. Uh, so that uh, would generate, w- we estimate around 200,000 direct jobs in the centers, and then probably another 80,000 or so in all of the different industries that depend on the child care centers for their own business, everything from construction to business services to consumer services
1: hmm.
2: uh, the second category uh, and in a way the most important is what a child care program means for female labor force participation uh, right now in the prime parenting age groups uh, women's labor force participation is about eight percentage points lower than it is for men and child care uh, is a huge part of that we've seen from the experience in quebec when they rolled out their uh, program Women's labor force participation and women's employment and then incomes and tax revenues all grew uh, dramatically. So if you did that across the country, you'd get several hundred thousand uh, additional workers in the labor force and generating income uh, and paying taxes. Then the third category of benefits is in a way the most uh, sort of long run and hard to quantify, but I still think they're important. Uh, The scientific evidence suggests that there's important cognitive improvements that kids get. By getting that high-quality early education while they're in their early years, while their their synapses basically are still developing. Uh, so put all those together, and you're looking at a at it generating a boost to GDP and a boost to government revenue that's larger than what it actually costs to provide the service. And other studies have confirmed that they think the benefits, including fiscal benefits from childcare, exceed the cost. So at this moment, when we need you know, every economic boost we can get, I think mm-hmm. this is a good one. Uh,
0: but if it's such a revenue, a job creator, why hasn't it been done before? Like I I think back to four when Paul Martin was talking about it, but that was, you know, it, it, we've always heard about this childcare program. And then just mm-hmm. nobody, you know, if it's going to provide the revenue, if it's going to provide the jobs, I don't care if you're, you're a conservative, you'd be all over something like that, you would think, right?
2: No, I think, and there have been changing attitudes. First of all, most countries have done it. So why haven't they done it? Well, most countries have done it, and in Canada, we're a bit of a laggard. Quebec has done it. Uh, There are changing attitudes in the business community, for example. You've seen the Canada Business Council, the major banks, uh, other business leaders come out and say this is something that would boost Canada's economy. Even here in in BC, where I live, um, the, the major Conservative Party, which is called the Liberal Party out here, they ran in this election that just happened with a very ambitious child care program. So I, I do think it's becoming less of a partisan issue, and there's more buy-in from across the spectrum uh, as mm-hmm. to these economic benefits.
0: Now, now Brenda, we, we talked about uh, your organization, of course, Independent and Small Businesses, uh, dealing with uh, the, uh, the fall financial update. Uh, I, I'm wondering, because your, your group is fairly new and diverse, uh, What kind of response are you getting from political leaders to your plight?
3: Uh, It's quite interesting that the the PCs are uh, very interested and very engaged in meetings with us. Uh, We actually have one meeting tomorrow with five MPs all at the same time. Um, But uh, we have a total, I think, of nine MP meetings tomorrow. Uh, I would say the large majority of them are PCs. The Liberals are a little bit harder to get on the phone um, to commit to a 30-minute uh, Zoom meeting. But the ones that we have met with have been extremely effective and very helpful. And uh, we we are, are very grateful for the help that we've had to get the word on the street of what we're going through and and how much we're falling through the cracks.
0: Now, Aaron, we talked about the, the $100 billion over three years. Um, but you're concerned that the government has no clue what to spend on. You know, if you put it off to the side saying you've got it there, maybe you don't have to spend it. Is that decent bookkeeping or no?
4: Well, look, they don't have it. They're talking about borrowing. And I think I think governments run into trouble when they decide how much they want to spend before they decide what they want to spend it on. I think mm-hmm. it's it's we can have a debate if you say here's our priority X, you know, we're going to spend X dollars on it. I think that's fair game and some people are going to like it and some aren't. But if you're just committing to a number for its own sake, uh, I think a lot of people start to say, "Well, shouldn't you really be focusing on delivering certain things and doing it obviously without wasting any money, rather than saying we're going to spend this much money and you know we'll we'll come up with something to spend the money on?"
0: Uh, Ian, Canadians have accumulated. and We talked about this earlier. More more savings during the pandemic. Some estimates put it at 150 billion dollars. But our, our debt to income ratio is about a $1 dollar to a dollar seventy one. Is this where Canadians should be using that extra to pay down their debt because you don't know what's coming?
1: I'm not so sure. I've, nope. um, I'm, years ago, I was a mortgage manager and mm-hmm. before I became a professor. I've studied these numbers very intently. Um, uh, every journalist that talks about this alleged indebtedness crisis of Canadians talks about the $2 trillion that we owe. And I'm talking individual debt, not corporate or government debt that Jim was referring to a moment ago. Every journalist refuses to talk about the asset side of the balance sheet and StatsCan publishes it every three months, the household balance sheet. We have assets. We own assets of over 13 trillion. You subtract the 2 trillion debt. We have net worth of over 11 trillion, which per Stats Canada, not my numbers, is over $300,000 per person. Now, I tell this to my students, and they say, wait a minute, I'm not worth $300,000. My answer is, of course you're not, because us older people are worth a lot more than 300000 But my point being that, that this idea that we're all going over the cliff into the bankruptcy is just not supported empirically. And yes, I know some people don't own their house, but 70% of Canadians do. It's one of the highest rates of homeownership in the world. And this idea that we're all you know, in desperate, desperate financial shape is not true. You know, even in the COVID crisis, most of us did not lose our job. You know, the economist calls it the 90-10 economy. 90% of us are doing okay. 10% of us, of course, are absolutely devastated and destroyed in accommodation, tourism, airlines. But that doesn't mean all of us lost our job. In fact, no one in the public sector, or almost no one in the public sector, lost their job. Professors weren't sent home and cut off and laid off. Neither were school teachers. Neither were federal public servants. Neither were large corporations. So, you know, in other words, we could be targeting uh, the 10% rather than using, uh, using this as an approach to go after and try and uh, provide extended benefits to a larger number of people that don't need the support.
0: No, so like when you're talking about targeting that, would that be sort of like the national child care program? Some folks do not need, need that support as opposed to others who obviously desperately do.
1: Well, I've testified several times in the last two, three, four years before House of Commons Finance Committee, and I just I, I have argued. And I've upset some people, but I've argued that universal pharmacare, universal daycare is is morally irresponsible. Uh, Giving free daycare to Ian Lee or a professor or free drugs is just, who doesn't need it and doesn't deserve it. Giving free drugs and free daycare to high income people in the top two quintiles, I think is morally irresponsible. We should be targeting people who really do need help in our society at the bottom and not give it to people at the top or in the top two quintiles.
0: Jim, how would that work with uh, your national childcare program? Would it be more well, targeted? Um,
2: uh, oh, no. The whole idea of it is to make it universal. And, you know, this is, again, where, where Ian and I are, are old friends, but on this one we'll part ways. Uh, we don't run our health care system like Ian just suggested. We don't run our schools like Ian just suggested. Uh, we've recognized that there's benefits to having essential public services delivered to everyone, regardless of their uh, income. And if you're concerned about fairness and making sure that people pay their fair share towards it, then you do that through the tax system, through a progressive uh, tax system. Then those well-income people who also benefit from uh, free health care, and in this case, free pharmacare and free child care, uh, will pay for it through their taxes. And uh, the international experience shows that leads to a much uh, a much more inclusive and healthy functioning society than one in which uh, those costs of a sort of targeted uh Programs, by and large end up deteriorating in quality and end up being a barrier to full equality. So uh, I would like to see the, uh, the child care program and the farmer care program be on the same principles as our schools and our health care system today.
0: Now, uh, Brenda, when we look at uh, your organization and obviously independent people, uh, small business people, what do you need now from the federal government?
3: Uh <laughs> That's a, that's a really good question. I would say the biggest thing that we need from the Liberal government is communication.
0: We, In need, what them sense?
3: Tell us, we need them to tell us what their plan is to, to restart uh, the tourism economy, uh, and that's both inbound and outbound. We need them to be doing more rapid testing in more centers, using more uh, different varieties of rapid tests. There are many out there uh, so that when the time comes for the borders to open, that they will have the the required amount of data. Mm -hmm. Um, But most importantly, we need some kind of protection for independent advisors who, uh, who are going to be facing a great deal of money in recall commissions that we're, we're all for refunding uh, our passengers. We believe they should get their money back, but we don't believe uh, that it should be at our expense. We provided services almost uh, over a year ago uh, and have filed our taxes and paid our taxes on those services. And now they're asking for that money to be returned to them. It's uh, That's the most important thing in front of us right now.
0: All right. Now, Aaron, we've got a question coming in from Facebook Live. How quickly do you think Canada's economy can recover from COVID if, as Ian says, it will come to a swift end this year?
4: Yeah, that's the, that's the trillion dollar question, right? Uh, yeah. And we're all hoping for what everyone talks about is a V-shaped recovery. I, I think that uh, that would be the best case scenario. Uh, but that's, again, coming back to the government's fiscal update, my concern is that the government is going to attempt to, uh, to stimulate by spending a lot of money that they don't have. Um, historically, they have not had good outcomes as a result of that. Um, we had very slow growth. We had a very stagnant economy. Ever since the Great Recession, and even going back a little bit further than that, the challenge has always been getting, uh, you know, strong growth. And the government has tried a lot of different tricks, and they have not really succeeded. And my fear is they're just going to double down on the same strategy. So I love I love to give a firm answer I wish I knew I would bet money on the market on it, but uh, as much as we hope, I still think I still think we're probably, you know, half a year to a year away from knowing uh you know how quickly things can reopen because of course, you know, Ian's point about the vaccines, they're coming, but as we've heard, you know, just because everyone's vaccinated doesn't mean you can reopen everything, doesn't mean every country is going to reopen and industries like travel will be back to 100%. So I still think we're way off from back to uh you know back to 100%. Uh, but certainly with the vaccines, that, that date is probably a lot closer than it would have otherwise been.
0: Uh, you know, Ian, I'm, I'm looking at the, the situation here. Uh, what do you think about um, this question? Can they, How quick do you think... I the don't believe the idea
1: that I think it's going to turn around in three months, but I have looked at all the major forecasts by the banks, by David Dodge's forecast, the parliamentary budget office, and nobody's suggesting it that I know of this it's going to go up to 2030. And in fact, look at Finance Canada and the, and the economic update. They're they're projecting a full recovery within roughly two years. 2023, some are suggesting 2024. The point is, is it's going to come fairly quickly we don't yet know how quickly the the vir- the the excuse me the vaccine is going to uh, be rolled out to everybody i suspect that once they get it out there. The drug companies, it's in their self-interest to ramp up production a lot more quickly than we think. And people are gonna be jumping up and down and I'm gonna be one of them to get that vaccine. And I think once we do vaccinate most of the people in the country, we're going to see the resilience of the private sector return. And I think the economy will return very quickly. And I don't accept the argument that we need stimulus for the entire economy. If 90% of us are doing okay, which we are, or we've only lost, and I say only, about a million people pre-COVID. Compared to pre-COVID, there's a million more to work. Yes, we have to focus on those million people. Yes, we've got to help them. We've got to help the travel agents, as we just heard from Brenda. But the idea that we should be throwing money at the other 90%, people in the public sector like me, we don't need help. We're doing okay. Let's huh. target those who do who need help.
0: All right. Now, now, Jim, uh, just going by Ian's idea, and on this question, say two years, uh, the economy is back what do you think the economy would look like in two years in Canada?
2: Well, um, I think it's going to be a, a bit of a longer, harder road than, uh, than has been suggested so far. Um, to some extent, we've, you know, we've seen a stronger recovery so far than I would have expected. I've, we've regained about 80% of the jobs that were lost in the first months of the pandemic, just with the partial reopening that, that we've experienced. And that's more than I would have guessed. Um, but I do think that we've had the low hanging fruit in a way. And um, some of the difficulties, some of the challenges that we're going to face are now not related to health restrictions on workplaces or businesses. It's going to be more of the kind of economic damage that was done um, to consumer confidence, to business confidence and expectations. And I think that's where there will be a, you know, uh, I think it will take at least two or three years to try to get back to what our potential output would have been. And I think Ian is, is right in the sense that the, the moment, the sort of dramatic moment in the early pandemic of just providing as much purchasing power and income support as possible, which government did, uh, I think that moment has passed. And we do need uh, to be thinking, uh, first of all, on the income supports of targeting it more carefully. And we've already seen that. The former CERB uh, is, has been phased out and we've now got uh, an improved employment insurance system trying to target those benefits. And then I do think that it is going to have to come from the kind of macroeconomic stimulus end of it. Things like infrastructure investment uh, and other programs that will uh, generate more work coming from the public sector as a way of supporting that longer run recovery back to our full potential.
0: And Brenda, I I, I mean, I'm guessing that your, your folks, the people, the 1,200 members of your organization can't wait that long, two years for the economy to come back because... You know, that one industry is looking for you to pay back money for this year.
3: Yeah, they, we're, we're told uh, the number of brick and mortars that will survive uh, through the spring um, is about 30%. Uh, so for independent advisors like myself, because I work from home, I don't have the huge overhead, but I also don't qualify for CBUS. So
4: hmm.
3: um, it, it's it's we're going to lose a lot of people. We're going to lo- lose a lot of very experienced people who who can make this industry run. A lot of them are retiring. Some of them are just walking away. Um, so it, but probably right now I'm booking into 2022 and people are crossing their fingers that the cruises and the river cruises will be going then because as the further we get into this, the, the further the dates are that they're canceling um, product. So Generating
0: revenue is going to be a while. Hmm. All right. Okay. Now, Aaron, um, in, in this uh, economic update, you, you know, obviously Canadians have been shopping online, virtual businesses, e-commerce all popping up. Was there anything in this in this update that would see this sort of spurred on?
4: Sorry, the shopping online?
0: Uh, e-commerce, virtual businesses, the, that kind of creation.
4: Well, look, I I think that that may be a question of consumer habits changing. And that's actually an interesting uh, question that we're all going to have to grapple with is even after the crisis is over, um, the world will have changed in certain ways. Things like increased telecommuting, um, you know, Mm. uh, commuting patterns. What are the impacts for that on, for example, businesses that rely on a certain amount of foot traffic in downtown course? I mean, this is all this is all something that we're going to have to strike a balance between. We don't you don't want to just throw people under the bus. I mean, for some people, it was just dumb luck, the line of work you were in. Mm. And I think a lot of people could say it's not fair to just say, you know, too bad for you. But on the other hand. Just trying to put everybody back in exactly the spot they were before and assuming that, you know, those patterns are going to come back, I think is also not realistic. So we're going to have to, you know, it's still a little too early to, to say mm-hmm. what some of those patterns will be. Uh, but, you know, one thing I look at uh, from my standpoint in Ottawa is we got, we, the federal government owns a lot of buildings. We need those buildings because they house government employees. If a lot of those employees are going to work from home, is that the sort of thing that the federal government needs to hold mm-hmm. on to as an asset?
0: Yeah, and and the other thing, too, is they wouldn't be paying taxes on those buildings as well. Ian, now you started this this little roundtable here. What do you think the Canadian economy is going to look like in two years?
1: Well, again, I'm going to be a minoritarian. I think that the shortages that have been looming pre-COVID because of the aging Mm -hmm. and actually are continuing as we speak. I know people in contracting. My own brother is a contractor in Thunder Bay. His biggest problem is not taxes. It's it's not customers. He can't get people to work for him. And I've talked to many different contractors with this problem. It's only going to become more acute. Two years from now, we will not be talking about unemployment. We'll be talking about the continuing looming job shortages because more and more boomers are going into retirement. In another five or seven years, all the boomers will be retired. And so we are going to be facing serious shortages in the next two, three, four years. And that's what I'm worried about. We're so focused on COVID, understandably, because it's a terrible, terrible disease or, or virus. But we're not we, we we're not looking further out, medium term and longer term, saying we're going to have serious labor shortages in this country. And we've got to be focusing on that.
0: Now, Jim, I, I read your piece today. You feel the public sector has a role to play here.
2: Uh, I do. You know, for the reasons I was hinting earlier, Ed, um, the, I think the full rebound in consumer confidence and business investment, uh, is going to take some time. So uh, kind, of, kind of like in, in the period after World War II uh, is a historical na- analogy that I've looked at. Um, we have been fighting a war, a war against disease this time. And uh, in the rebuilding, uh, I think we're going to need uh, public sector investment in physical infrastructure. You know, building roads and bridges mm-hmm. is always uh, helpful at a time like this, but also social infrastructure. And that's where uh, I like this child care plan.
0: I, I understand that, but it only seems to employ a certain number of people or just, as, you know, obviously trades uh, in, in terms of child care. But there's a lot of other people who won't be able to benefit from that.
2: Well, as a way of uh, initi- initiating uh, investment in production, uh, the public sector can actually play a, a leading role as a growth industry. Uh, we don't we don't you know, we often hear it described uh, only as a cost or as something that is a drain. Uh, but in fact, when you look at jobs in healthcare and education and other public services, they've been a great boon to the economy. So, in the years until the private sector gets back fully on its feet, expanding those jobs, I think, will be beneficial.
0: Well, we are out of time once again. Folks, I want to thank you for, for joining us. Our guest on Unp- Unpublished TV, Ian Lee, professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Jim Stanford is an economist and the director for of the Centre for Future Work. Brenda Slater is with the Association of Canadian Independent Travel Advisors, and thanks for sharing your story. And Aaron Woodrick is, with the, is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Now, this is our last show for 2020, but we will return with a brand new podcast in early January, followed by our next Unpublished. Published TV. On behalf of the team here at Pop Pop Up Podcasting, JP, Will, and Lisa, and on Published Media, James O'Grady, Pat Friel, and myself. Have yourself a wonderful holiday despite the challenges. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.